0: My name is Josh McLean, I'm one of the pastors here, and as I say on a regular basis, it is a privilege for me uh, to be opening the Word of God with you this morning and to preach. Uh, It really is a joy, I say that a lot, and so you might think, well, maybe it's not really true, Uh, I can't believe that you would doubt my character as I say that. Now, I guess I kind of did lead you uh, intellectually there with, by pre- presenting that question or opportunity, and you might have just agreed with me. But no, it really is a truth. I love to see your faces, and it's a joy for me. Um, and uh, even though I can only see half your faces, uh, most of you, um, I do want to encourage you guys in this. As we uh, do our best to comply with the governor's orders, we, I want to encourage you that, that we really do encourage you to wear masks. Even though we're in the middle of the service, um, you might say, well... <clears throat> Beforehand, it was just in the hallways, and and, uh, and not when we we're singing. But I want to encourage you, no matter what, when we're in the when we're in here, as much as you can, as much as lies within you, uh, lay down and uh, your Christian liberty, and to wear a mask, and so that we can be in compliance. That would be uh, a favor for me, your pastor, and also uh, for the, the church at large. As we get into this service this morning, I want to at at risk of exasperating you any further. I want to, once again, give the definitions for the gospel and the gospel-centered life. And so you'd probably say, well, you've, you've told me these things many, many times. Why are you telling me again? Remember, because this is our life. This is how we come to Christ through the gospel, and then it's not something that we set to the side, but it's something that we actually live our lives under the power of. And so what is the gospel? It's, it's vitally important, literally vitally important, so what is the gospel? It's, it's this, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that even though we've said that probably uh, no less than 30 times in the last five or six weeks, uh, I, I pray that even now that somebody for the first time is really grasping that and understanding that it is very much good news that God saves sinners. He rescues sinners. How? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Of Jesus Christ. That's our life. That's the gospel. That's what we're focusing on. And not just, by the way, while we work through this series, but throughout our lives, this is what we're focusing on, the gospel. And so how do we truly focus on the gospel? What will that look like? What what is the gospel-centered life? Well, it's this. It's the continual rediscovery of these truths, these followers, that God is more holy than you can imagine, You are more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. And so it's our prayer that these two points would continually become more disparate. That the the holiness of God would become even more higher, yes, than you realized yesterday. Now, not in all actuality, it will not become more holy. God cannot be any more holy than he already is. But your eyes, in a sense, can become more open. In the gospel centered life longs to see God for who He is more and more clearly. And as a result, when that takes place, we begin to see our own sinfulness at a greater level. We begin to realize it even more. And when that happens, we're not left hopeless. We're not left just to, to wallow in our guilt and shame and defeat. But we look to the cross. In the gospel-centered life, we look to the cross and we realize that it is more powerful than we thought it was the day before. That because God is more holy that, and because we are more sinful, the cross has become more powerful. It's become greater. It's, be, it's begun to span the gap now at a, at a greater cost. At least in the sense that you realize. So that's the gospel-centered life. In one sense, we looked at Last week, one of the center components of this gospel-centered life, and that's the response that man has to the gospel. What, what should we say to the gospel, that, that God is so holy, that we are so sinful, and that the cross is so powerful? Well, we respond in repentance. Remember that. I asked the question last week. I said, what would you do? Imagine being in, the, in a crowd and hearing Jesus speak and being moved and compelled, something stirring in your in your heart, in your spirit, and you're thinking, what must I do? Regularly we hear that in the New Testament. What must we do? What do you want us to do? How can we be saved? How can we do the works of God? And oftentimes, whether it be Christ himself, our Lord, or whether it be one of the apostles or some other preacher or elder, the answer was this, the, re- the response was this, something similar, some form or fashion to repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is the message of Jesus. We, looked, we re- referred back to our time in the, this series of the Gospel of Mark. We looked at last week at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. If you can, turn there quickly. We'll skip back and forth through a couple passages this morning. But I want to remind you of this. It's so good. After John was arrested, it says in verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, he's proclaiming the good news, that's the the title of his sermon, but this is the content. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, and now what are you to do about it? You're to repent, and you're to believe in the gospel. This is the message of Jesus. And it's a two-part message. I don't think there's ever been a more pregnant and profound statement made Repent and believe the gospel. And so we began to unpack that last week. We looked at repentance. It's been said that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So we looked at repentance. This week, I want us to look at believing. Repentance and believing. So you looked at, uh, maybe you looked at me with Mark 1. Let's jump over to John chapter 6. I want to read a passage of Scripture this morning. John chapter 6. I'll read from verses 25 to 34. One such story is found in this passage, a story where Jesus is asked by the crowd or by somebody in the crowd, hey, what should we do? And he answers it. He answers for us. And so I think it's important that we hear that this morning. We're asking the same question. What does the gospel-centered life look like? Last last week we said, hey, it's repentance. Repentance. And this week, we'll look at believing. Let's look at the words of of Jesus here as he responds. Beginning, though, in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, "What must we be, or what must we do, to be doing the works of God?" Jesus, what, what, what do we have to do in order to be considered doing the works of God? Jesus answered to them, "This is the work of God." All right, they get their pens, their papers out. Hopefully, you are too. You're ready to write this down. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. That's my prayer. With that in mind, let's let's go to him in prayer. Father, this is our prayer, that you would give us this bread. Father, we've ate our fill, many of us this morning. We've tasted of the world's goods. We've tasted of our own and we've been left hungry, unsatisfied. And by your grace, many of us have recognized that this is not the path that you have for us. So as our eyes are opened, we see our sin, we see your holiness, and we come to you and we say, what must we be doing to do the work of God? And here you've answered for us by way of John chapter 6, that we are to believe. Jesus, would you give us that bread? Would you give us that belief? Would you give us what we are to believe? As you have in this scripture this morning, we pray that you would continue to draw us to that place, and that you would work repentance, and that you would work faith, and believing in our lives this morning, even now. And we pray these things with total dependence on you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. i want to give you a definition quickly. To believe. What does Jesus mean when he says that we are to believe? To do the work of God, you have to believe. What does he mean? Well, here's, here's, what, uh, here's my definition for this morning. It's to hold something as true and to rest in it. To hold something as true and to rest in it. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we read a little bit of a story of the life of Abraham. At this point in time, his name is Abram. It later changes to Abraham. But in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, I want to read this for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a huge promise. It's a huge order. And maybe you don't know the context here. God has promised a man that has no children in the twilight years of his life, that God will make him a great name. He'll have not just a great name, but he'll have a great nation that comes from him. His descendants, his family, his tribe will begin to expand and to grow. And in him, everyone in the entire world will be blessed through Abram. He has no children. His wife is old he is old. It literally would take a miracle. It is impossible that this could come true. But look at verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. It seems as though Abram believed God, right? He acted in accordance with the information that he was given. He had no children. He had no expectation that this would come true except for the promise of God. If we had a wayback machine this morning and I could take all of you with me and I were to go to uh, run into some guy, maybe you know him, LeBron James. In 2001, he's he's coming onto the scene. A lot of people are beginning to recognize who this young uh, future superstar was going to be. And if I were to take you guys all with me to Ohio and on a Friday night, we're going to go watch a high school basketball game. If I were to go up to LeBron James, this young man, and say, this high school uh, student, if I were to say... Hey, I want you to know, son, that one day, this is going to be hard for you to believe, but one day you're going to become a superstar in the NBA. Do you know what he would have said to me? He probably would have rolled his eyes. He probably would have said, get away from me, not because he didn't believe me, but because at that point in time, everybody knew that was going to happen. Everybody did. Everybody knew that that as a freshman in high school, he was averaging 21 points and six rebounds per game. For his high school, his team went 27-0 his freshman year. They, made, they were the only high school boys team in Ohio to finish the season undefeated. And as a sophomore, he averaged 25 points, seven rebounds, five assists, three, th- almost four steals. Sometimes they were his high school They had so many people desiring to attend that they would have to go to the local university and play there because it it sat more like 5,500 people and that was more in line with the amount of people that wanted to come watch this game as, as well as fans, alumni of the school and even NBA scouts. They all wanted to come watch him play and so for me to say of this ninth grade, this 10th grade boy, hey, one day, son, you're gonna be a superstar. He would pull out USA Today and he would say, of course, you see this right up They already said that about me. Everybody in the world, everybody in the know knows that. And so what are you you saying? Of course that's gonna happen. That's not what's taking place with Abraham. In hindsight, we can look at Abraham, we can look at Abraham and we can say, yes, this guy was an all-star. Yes, it makes total sense that God would use him But at this point in time, when God comes to him, it is totally opposite. It's very clear that Abram will not be the father of a great nation. It's very clear that he will not be a blessing to everyone in the earth, but instead that he will be a blip on the radar, just like so many of us. That he'll be born, that he'll die or live a normal life, and that he'll die and be forgotten. And yet when God comes to him and says, hey, son, one day you'll be the father of a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there's other aspects to the Abrahamic promise and covenant, but those two things, it, was, it would not have been clear. So Abraham had nothing else to go on except for the promise of God. And it seems as though in that passage that he believed that this would take place. Chapter 15 gives us a clear statement. Genesis chapter 15, it gives us a very clear statement of, of the disposition of our, our man, Abram. So in chapter 15, I'm gonna read a couple of verses here. I'll read one through six. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? I've done what you've told me to do, but I still have no children. I've acted in faith, believing in this miracle, believing in this promise, and yet I still remain childless. And the heir of my, son, of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Still no height for Abraham. Still can't sink the three-pointer. Still no press. After the promise has come, he can't, he's he's struggling to believe. He's saying there's no evidence that what you've told me is going to take place. I'm struggling to believe it. And God says... No, no, no. no. What I said is true. And I want you to look at the sky. Count these stars, Abram. How many are there? Of course you can't do that. That's an impossible task. That's how many children you're going to have. It's going to be uncountable, Abram. What does it say in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15? It says, and he believed the Lord. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This landed Abram or Abraham later in the in the hall of faith which has been uh, Hebrews 11. That's what it's been affectionately called. The hall of faith. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read a couple verses there. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 says this. Now faith, belief, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Speaking of Abram and many others. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is a definition of faith. I want to encourage you to take, take a moment and go back and study that this week. We're going to pass on. I'm actually going to jump down to verse number six. It says this about faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Speaking of God, it's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to do the will of God. It's impossible to do the work of God without faith. As a matter of fact, the work of God, as we saw in John 6, is faith. It is belief. And what does it say? For whoever would draw near to God must, what, believe What must they believe? That he exists. They must believe that God exists. And not just some God, not just any God, but the God who has named himself and told us about himself. That he's told us, this is my name and this is what I do. This is who I am. That's who we must believe exists. So we would draw near to God, how? By believing that he exists, that he is who he says he is, and not only that, but that he rewards those who seek him. That he rewards those who seek him. And so what is the work that we are to be doing this morning? We're to be believing, we're to be trusting. And you say to me, Pastor Josh, I've got to be missing something. Maybe you're thinking, or maybe you're missing something, Pastor Josh. I've done that. I've believed I believe that Jesus is God. I believed the gospel. That's how I became a Christian. That's why I'm here this morning. And yet, I don't have any joy. Maybe that's you here this morning. And you're saying, I've done these things. What more do you want from me? There's got to be something I'm not doing that I need to be doing. I don't have any joy. Or maybe you're saying this. I would have joy. I did have joy. I have had it, but now I'm, I'm, I'm trapped in sin repetitive every day I'm stuck in gossip and I'm tearing people down I'm stuck in bitterness and I hate this person for what they did to me maybe last week or maybe 10 years ago and you say I know that I shouldn't be that way and yet I can't escape from it I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and so for you to tell me this morning that all I have to do is believe I find that hard to believe maybe that's you here this morning you say I have no joy I have no peace I have no freedom from sin as a matter of fact you say I'm still a slave to sin I'm still owned by it there's got to be something else for me to do maybe that's what you're thinking this morning what is it that we are to be doing by the way What's the one thing, the one, what's the top thing? Let's ask it that way. What's the top thing in your mind, just off the top of your head, that you need to be doing as a Christian to grow in holiness and joy? Maybe you would say reading the Bible. This is a great, uh, great discipline of grace. Uh, it's It's a discipline of a Christian that I should, as a godly believer, should be pursuing. I should read my Bible every day. Of course you should. But is that the number one thing that you should be doing? I would argue no. Maybe you would say it's prayer. It's prayer. There's power in prayer. Power in prayer, I've heard that a thousand times. Grandma told me, Dad told me, uh, Pastor Josh told me, I'm going to start praying every day. That's going to be the discipline. That's going to be the thing that helps me to break through and experience the, the fullness of my salvation and the joy of it and the freedom from sin. And I would say to you, I don't think that's what you need to be doing. Not number one. What about fasting? That'll really level you up. That'll, that'll bring you to the next plateau. That'll that'll, that'll get you through whatever you're trying to get through, right? It's a great discipline. It's a great means that we should pursue as we long to be like Christ and be conformed into his image. But these things, D groups life groups, church attendance, none of these things are the top of the list. John chapter 6 These folks gathered around Jesus, they say, What was what must we be doing to 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 inherit eternal life? What must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus says to them, You must what? Not pray, not read, not fast, not attend church, not commit to a life group, not to to commit to church membership. But he says, You are to believe. You're to believe. So why is there so little fruit in your life? Why are you not experiencing the joy of the Lord as promised? The freedom from sin that was guaranteed. Why, why is that not yours this morning? I would argue, I would offer rather, that it may be because of this. That you are doing too much while you are believing too little. You're doing too much while you're believing too too little. Is nothing wrong with prayer? Of course not. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible. We encourage that around here. Along with these other disciplines of, of grace that God has given to us. And yet it's possible for us to do too much and believe too little. And so what's the connection between your lack of joy, your shortage of victory over sin, and Jesus' command to believe. What's the connection? I want to pursue that this morning. How will you experience the, the joy of your salvation? How will you be, experience freedom from sin? What's the connection between those things and the command of Jesus to believe? Well, there's this idea that every single sin that man has ever committed, primarily and at its root, is breaking the first commandment. That every single sin is actually breaking the first commandment. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but Jesus actually said this same thing. He didn't pick up on it, but he pointed this out, right? In, in Matthew chapter 22, this is what Jesus says in response. Hey, what's the greatest command, Jesus? He says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul <clears throat> and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's not just the first in order of, uh, of chronological uh, giving or, uh, or passing along of information, but it's also the greatest. Another way to say it would be it's the foundation. It says the second is like unto it. It's the second in greatness. It's the second in chronological uh, uh, passing along. And so that means to say the first one is the, is the foundation for everything. And right above it, right on top of it, is this next one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus goes on to say, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. That word depend, it, it's used of fastening or tying one thing to another. we I hang one thing on something else, as in a nail in the wall holding up a picture. Or maybe a, 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 a shovel holding up a road worker. That's the relationship between these two commands, right? One supports the other. That's the idea here. Another way to demonstrate that uh, this uh, uh, idea is that they're a summary of the law. It's also been pointed out that it's literally a summary of the two. You've probably recognized this before, but the, the first half of the Ten Commands are God-focused. And the rest are man-focused. And so just in the Ten Commandments, we see what a, a great picture about how all of the laws of God find their their, 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 their support and boil down and, and are summarized in these two commands. The great reformer of the church, he picked up on this as well. Luther said this, As the first commandment is the very first, highest, and best, from which all others proceed, so also its work, that is, what comes from it, or faith, or confidence in God's favor at all times, is the very first highest, and best, from which all other works must proceed, exist, remain, be directed, and measure. Luther, in his own words, is answering the same question that the crowd asked Jesus in John chapter 6. He uses a word here, confidence. Confidence. This is belief. This is faith. I have confidence in something. What does confidence even mean? Well, the prefix, con. It doesn't mean somebody taking advantage of you. It means with, having. This next, the next F-I-D or fid, confidence. It comes from the word fidere. It means to trust, fidelity, faith, right? It means to trust. And so it's the state, right? It's the state of having trust in something, confidence. This is what Jesus is calling those in the crowd there in John 6. He's calling them to it. He's saying, hey, believe. Place your faith in the gospel. Place your confidence in the gospel. And here's the key. This is so important. If you're writing things down, this is a good thing to write down. The key to gospel-driven transformation is to dig down deep, find the idolatry and unbelief that is manifesting itself in various ways in your life. The key to gospel-driven transformation is to dig down deep and find the idolatry and unbelief that is manifesting itself in various ways. I want to help to unpack that statement here in just a moment as we move forward. I want to illustrate this for you, though. Perhaps you've been confronted in a loving way concerning stealing somebody's wallet. Somebody said, hey, I, uh, I noticed you stole somebody's wallet, that, that dude's wallet. And you say, yeah? What do you mean by stealing? Well, you took something that didn't belong to you. And you say, oh, well, that, that, uh, that makes sense. I probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah, no, you shouldn't have done that. here Because here's what the word of God says. It says that you shouldn't steal. And so then you say to yourself, I, that's... That's something I shouldn't have done. And so I repent of that. I, I, I changed my mind. I shouldn't steal things any, anymore. And you even begin to say that I, I'm not going to steal. But what happens is in your life, you recognize that you, you stop stealing people's wallets because your hand got smacked, but you don't stop stealing other things. You say, hey, well, I, they told me that the word of God says that I'm not to steal. And so I stopped stealing wallets. But then you begin to steal something else. Maybe you recognize that this is happening in your life and you say, well, I'm I've, I've, I've stealing something else and I shouldn't be stealing that. Maybe it's you're your, your uh, your, your writing papers for college and you're actually stealing somebody else's information and you're putting your name on the top of that. And, and so that's what you've begun to steal now. And the next thing you know, you start stealing silverware from the, uh, from the, you know, the plastic silverware that they give you at the restaurants now. And, and you start you, people are confronting you on a regular basis and saying, hey, you're not to steal that either. And you're not to steal that. We see what happens on the, on the surface level. You're, you're being ad- you're addressing these little issues of, not little issues, but these particular individual issues, not to steal this or not to steal that. But there's something deeper that's taking place. And this is where the principle of God renewing your mind comes into play. As Romans chapter 12 speaks of. You need to have your mind renewed with the truths of God and the truth about yourself. And when one steals, they're revealing something about themselves, some valuable information, some pertinent information that they need to be confronted with. And that is that they believe this. They stole because, number one, they, they believe that their needs are more important than other people's needs. That's why they stole. And so we, they, they got their hands smacked because they were... Take it Because they were doing something that they weren't supposed to do, but not addressed with the reason why it was wrong. Well, in their mind, what they're revealing, an incorrect uh, th- thought, is that their needs are more important than the needs of others. Another thought that they have that it's being revealed by their action, and repetitive action, is that their desires are more important than God's desires. Another thought that we see, an incorrect thought, is that my sin will never be discovered. That God is unaware. Justice won't be served in my life as uh, according to the, the these thefts that I've committed. They're unaware of it. It's almost as if they're playing whack-a-mole, right? Over here, pops up, hey, don't steal somebody's wallet, got it. And then over here, this one pops up, hey, don't steal silverware, boom. And it's this never-ending, exhausting life of smash a sin. That would be a great game to play, right? And some of you are saying, well, that's not a great game. That's what i been playing. And regularly, I'm just trying to smash sin in my life. If you were to look at the insanity of that game, right? It's fun. But in real life, if that was your job, that every time the mole pops inside of that, you're to smash it. If you were to play that, you might get good at it, but eventually you would become exhausted. And the best thing to do, I would think, spiritually speaking, is instead of using the handle that I can't stand, thats chained, right? It's chained and so you can't move it really good anyway. Instead of continually trying to smash these sins individually, to go and to pull the plug. To just pull the plug. To go to the deeper issue. To flip the fuse. Trip the breaker. Shut it down. And this is what belief does in our lives. It doesn't just address these topical, surface sins. The gospel speaks so much deeper and so much stronger to the very roots of why we sin. I referenced Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The encouragement or the command for those in Christ is that they have their minds renewed, that they not be transformed, or sorry, that they not be conformed to the world and to its standards ever-changing, but instead to be renewed and to be conformed and to be transformed into what? To God's standard. One of the ways that that takes place in our lives is that by the word of God, just practically speaking, just to take a break here, one of the ways that that's going to happen, that you be transformed, that your mind be transformed, is through the word of God. And So while the number one thing for us to do is not to read our Bible as if it's some work, but to believe what we read. And so on a practical level, I want to just encourage you, if you're spending time on a regular basis in God's word, continue to do that. And if you're not, I want to encourage you to do that. To hear the word of God preached on Sundays, discussed throughout the week in your life groups and in your D groups and on a regular basis, getting up or before you go to bed, taking time to hear from God so that your mind truly can be conformed and transformed rather. Just as, as Jesus said in John, prayed in John chapter 17, that the word of God would sanctify us, that it would change us, that it would prepare us. Do you remember the Ten Commandments though? Many of you learned them as a child. The first commandment, what is it? It has to do with worshiping God. And the command that he's the only one that we're to worship. There's only one God. And we're not to worship anything else. So I want to illustrate to you how simple, ordinary sins actually, that on the surface, actually offend that number one command, right? So we talked about stealing. So to steal somebody's wallet is theft, and so it's a sin against your neighbor. Your neighbor, what, he's made, he, he's made in the image of God. And so you've sinned not just against your neighbor, but ultimately you've sinned against the one who made him. You could trace it another way. You've sinned because God told you not to steal. And so anytime you break God's law, you've also worshipped something else. You've put something in front of God. You've worshipped something else. You've lifted and elevated something higher than him. So often this is the case, our sin is really us elevating our own preferences and desires above those of God, which is again to break the first commandment. But if you were to change that sin up, let's not talk about theft, let's talk about gossip. Let's say you find yourself knee deep in gossip and you're even convicted about it. You've been talking about people behind their backs and in a destructive and even a judge- judgmental way. Well, what do you need to do? Well, you need to repent of that. You need to hit that, that uh, sin, right? Smash that sin. It's wrong. You shouldn't have done it. But in doing so, when you, when you realize the sin that you've committed, ask yourself this question. Why was I gossiping? Why was I doing that? I shouldn't have been doing that. It's wrong. And yet, why was I doing that? There's several motivations that I'm going to call idols this morning. That's what our Gospel-Centered Life study would call that. They call them idols or motivations. So when we gossip, maybe it's because we're pursuing the idol or we're worshiping the idol of approval. We're worshiping the idol of approval. We're saying things like this. I want the approval of the people that I'm talking to. And if if I can gossip about this person the people that I'm talking to, maybe they'll see that I am worthy of being approved of. And so that's this heart issue. That's the deeper reason. Is it wrong to gossip? Yes. But is it also wrong to, to seek in a sinful way somebody else's approval as if, as a Christian, you don't already have it? Maybe you find yourself gossiping and you ask yourself, why was I gossiping? And you realize that you were uh, paying uh, worship to the idol of control. This was your heart motivation. You wanted to be in control. And you know, you found out that you can use gossip in a way to manipulate and to control other people. So again, you see this surface level. Hey, stop gossiping. Okay, you're right. Shouldn't have done that. I'm not, to, I'm not to do that. That's a sin against God. That's a sin against my brother. And so I'm not going to do, do that. But then if we were to say, well, what are we believing in that moment? Well, we're believing that gossip is a way that we can control other people. And we're believing that we need to control other people. And so then we do it. But the gospel says that's not true. What about the idol of reputation, the motivation of reputation? You're pursuing a good reputation. And so you say things like this. I want to feel important. And so I cut somebody else down. I want to look good, and so I cut somebody else down verbally. They're not that great of a person. Did you know this about them? Oh yeah, they're they're a good neighbor, but I'm a better neighbor because I actually mow my yard more than they do. That's when it's really hitting home, right? All of a sudden it started raining, and now we have to mow our yards. Maybe it's the idol of success. Someone else is succeeding, you're not. And so related to this reputation when you you try to cut them down and you gossip about them because you want to be seen as successful. And we recognize that success is graded on a curve, right? Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And so we begin to cut other people down and say, well, yeah, but don't you know that how they got to where they're at now is because they had an inheritance. They're not that hard of a worker. They're not that successful. Of course, how could they mess up? How could they really not land where they are right now? So we begin to cut them down. Did you not know this about them? you see? You see this this surface level, there's this gossip, we shouldn't do that, but then there's this heart motivation, this heart level that leads us to that. That it's a sinful thought. It's unbelief, it's idolatry, and it it shows the fruit of gossip. Maybe your idol that you're worshiping is security. You talk about others so that your personal insecurities will be covered see how these are related. Maybe it's the idol of pleasure. Someone else is enjoying life, you're not, and so you attack them. Maybe it's knowledge. You're, you're talking about people in a way of showing that you know more, because you have to prove that you're not stupid, that you're smart. And I know these things about those people, and you don't, and so I'm going to fill you in. I want you to know that I'm intelligent, and nobody, nobody is going to slip by unnoticed, without me observing and bringing it to light. Maybe it's the idol of recognition. Talking about other people tends to get you noticed. People listen to you. Incidentally, they're probably now afraid of you, right? This idol of recognition. You're talking about people because you want people to notice you, to think a lot of you. You want to control the conversation. And so you backfill, you pursue recognition through gossip. So many of these we don't even recognize that we're doing, but we're doing some introspection right now. We're seeing that it's not, it's not just so easy to say, hey, let's stop gossiping, but to recognize why do we do those things? Why do we steal? Why do we lie? Each and every one of these sins, it speaks to what's going on in our hearts. It speaks to what we truly believe. This last one, the idol of respect. That person disrespected me, and so I'm going to disrespect them, because the most important thing is that I be respected, right? This is a a motivation. This is a heart idol. What I want you to see as we consider the connection between our joy, our, 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 our victory over sin, and Jesus commanding us to believe is that there are no arbitrary, unsystematic sins. Every single sin that you commit can be traced back to belief, or you could also say unbelief, that has spurred it along in its initiation, in its birth. Every single sin that you commit can be traced back to belief, or to say it the other way, unbelief. You're believing some lie, some untruth about God, so ask yourself this question. When you find yourself, let's say, gossiping, what lie am I believing? What has led me to this place that I would think that it's a good idea to do that or an appropriate thing to do that? Well, because they disrespected me. That's why. And so I'll get them back. Well, so the most important thing is that you be respected, that your honor be maintained. Well, no. What does the Bible say about that? Well, And so we recognize it. What does the gospel say about it? And so we begin to see the gospel speaks not just to the top level, not just to what people can see, not just to actions, but it speaks to the heart. So we prefer, though, instead to be doing rather than believing. We prefer to be to to going around and snipping the weeds off like we talked about before. When mom says, hey, go get the weeds out of the flower bed, and we say, hey, yeah, let's do it. Let's get them. And we snip them all off the top, and we don't, we're so naive to think, well, there's nothing else going on below the surface. It won't come back. There's nothing there. How foolish is that? But we prefer to be doing, and we'd rather do that than believe. We, We prefer to focus on the surface rather than to focus on the heart. But when we truly believe the gospel, In each and every area and on every level, the power of sin in our lives is literally broken and we begin to experience joy and victory. And doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like cold water for your soul? What you're longing for, true victory, true joy that we've been promised in Christ. We've been promised in the gospel. It's available to us. The answer is that we are to believe. Another way that we could... Perform diagnostics on our own heart is to ask ourselves these types of questions. What What do I fear most? And so, ask yourself that right now. What What is it that you fear the most? What is it? Is it death? Do you fear death? Do you fear being maligned and lied about your reputation to be destroyed? Do you fear singleness? Do you fear being childless? Do you fear you're losing a child that you've had? What is it that is the greatest fear that you have in your heart? So often it reveals lies that we believe about God and about ourselves. You could ask it another way. What is it that I love most? What is it that makes me most anxious? So often these types of diagnostic questions as we dig down into the soil of our own hearts reveal to us that we are not truly believing what God says about us. It's been said that uh, one of the greatest boxers of all time, many of you know him, Rocky Balboa, it's been said that he revealed one of the idols of of his heart in one of the lines, it's one of the best lines in the Rocky movie when he said this, if I can just go the distance... If I can just stand, if I can just go the distance, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. What did he fear the most? He just didn't want to be a bum. And everybody else told him that. And he told himself that. And the street that he lived on told him that. And he said, I just, that's not who I want to be. My greatest fear is that I'll be considered a bum. And so what was he revealing? He was revealing his heart motivation. Why did he do what he did? Good or bad, perceived by culture, he did it. Because his greatest desire was to not be considered a bum. Sometimes that works itself out in a good way. Sometimes you end up winning a boxing match, right? And sometimes it works itself out a different way. Sometimes you end up lying. Sometimes you end up cheating. Sometimes you end up stealing in order to get what you want. And so this motivation is poor. Why? What should our greatest motivation be? It should be in line with the word of God. It should be in line with the holiness of God and our sinfulness. The greatest thing that we should fear is death and separation from God himself. The greatest thing that we should love is God and Christ. We should be most thankful and find most beautiful the cross of Christ and not these other lesser things. The truth is that everyone has something or or someone that we can easily put in that place. That I fear this or if I could only have this, then I would know I'm somebody Whatever it is, without this bottom line, we would say, I'm meaningless, or I, I have no value. And again, for Rocky, it was the fact that he, he was afraid he couldn't go the distance. And if he, if he could, he would prove he wasn't a bum. That was the most precious and beautiful thing to him. Dr. Stephen Childers, one of the professors at Reformed Theological Seminary, made this statement. He said, Faith involves learning how to set the affections of our mind and heart on Christ. Faith involves learning how to set the affections of our mind and heart on Christ. He goes on to say that faith requires a continual rehearsing and delighting in the many privileges that are now ours in Christ. So when Jesus says, with this in mind, when Jesus says, Believe. He's saying, "Set your affections that are in your heart and in your mind, set them on me. Rest in me. Find your fulfillment in me and in what I say about you, and what the good news of Jesus Christ, and what the good news that God has sent, what it says about you, and rehearse continually privileges that are now yours in Christ. This is what is involved in faith. It's not just to believe. At one point in time, you sinned and God forgave you because of Christ. And now you're to work the rest of your life and earn that salvation. No. But it's to believe that the way that we've come to Christ is the way that we'll walk in Christ. We came to him in faith and we'll walk in faith. And what does faith mean? Does it attack just the top level? Does it attack just the surface level sins that we commit? No. It goes far deeper than that. And it doesn't just say, don't gossip. But it says, confess and repent of the idolatry and the unbelief that's deep in your heart that reveals itself in gossip. And so you say, for so long, I've believed in Jesus. I've believed in Him. I believed in Him when I was a little child. And you say, is that enough? Well, it depends. If you're saying that you believe in Jesus like, like you believe in Abraham Lincoln, that like he was the 16th president of the United States, then you're missing the point. You see, remember the devils, what do they believe about Jesus? Think, with this. Think about this for just a minute. In a sense, demons, Satan himself, even right now has a higher view of Christ than you do. He has a higher Christological view than you do. Imagine that. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows Christ. He's not confused. Not like so many of us are. And yet, will he be saved? No. Why? Does he have faith in Christ? Does he have confidence in Christ? In the sense that we've discussed this morning? No. He's not depending on him. He's fighting against him. And so in one sense, he sees Christ more truly than we do. But the difference is that those who are truly in Christ, they marvel at him. And they find beauty in him. And it's in a way that Satan never has or ever will. So what, what are we to do? We're not just to simply believe that Jesus exists. The name exists. This person exists. That, that, that some great teacher, son of God even, died on a cross, raised raised from the dead. That's not enough. John Piper is helpful here. When he's speaking of belief, he offers this. It's, It's seeing him, Jesus, for who he really is, seeing him as infinitely valuable as the Son of God. It's not just acknowledging the fact that he is the Son, but also seeing him as infinitely precious and valuable. Infinitely more precious and valuable than anything that you could face. And that in him, we have every spiritual blessing already. As the book of Ephesians teaches us. That in Christ, we lack nothing. We don't need to gain respect. We don't need to gain approval. We don't need to gain any of these things that that lead us into sin. It's an unbelief. It's it's looking to Christ and saying, you're not enough. God, you've not given me what I need. So what are we to do with all this? What are, what are we to take home? I want to kind of land the plane for you this morning. And if this morning were like a birthday party and you're to leave here with a party favor, this is what I'm about to tell you. That's going to be it, right? And it, uh, it's much better than like a temporary tattoo or like a whistle that you'd normally receive. Like it, it's... So here's five points of application. What are you to do? What, as, we, as we consider this idea of believing and its connection with the gospel-centered life. Well, number one... Number one, what are we to do? Identify surface sins. And so we're not to say, hey, hey, that surface sin, that's just on the outside, something deeper. And so I'm just going to ignore the, the, the surface sins. Well, that's not helpful. No, we definitely want to start there. We want to start with identifying these surface sins. What are those surface sins? Are they anger with your children? Are they a tendency to lie? Maybe it's a desire for pornography. Whatever it is. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's stealing. Whatever it is, write it down. And by the way, this is obviously in connection with the sermon that we looked at last week, repent. So should we just be like, oh, that's interesting. I've lied this week. Hmm, I wonder why. No, well, we want to repent. And then we want to move on and say, well, not just do I want to repent, but I want to ask some questions about these sins. And so, number one, we identify those sins. And in that, remember, we connect, it's connected with this idea of repentance. But as far as applying today's idea and text, we make a list. So number one, identify. Number two, reflect on the motivations. Reflect on the motivations. And so identify and reflect. Ask yourself, in connection with these surface level sins, what am I, what am I seeking after? Asking yourself this thought. Why did I do that? What's really happening in my heart? You might think, well, that's just introspection and that's selfish. and well, No, it's not. There, can be, there comes a point where that is unhelpful. But if you have a headache, well, it might be helpful to say, well, why do I have a headache? Because there's a nail sticking out of the side of your head. Maybe you should go to the hospital. Maybe you should reflect on why that's happened the way that it has happened. This is what we do, right? So number one, we identify. Number two, we reflect. What's going on? We ask ourselves questions like, what's my deepest need? What's my greatest fear? Whose agenda am I operating under? What do I love most? What do I fear most? What, do I, what am I showing to trust most in this moment? What, asking yourself this question, what is it about God in connection with this particular sin or these sets of sin, am I not believing? So you're performing these diagnostics, you're reflecting. What's the motivation here? What's happening beneath the surface? Number three, as you've worked through uh, identity and reflection, or identifying and reflecting, rather, we would begin to acknowledge Jesus' victory. Acknowledging Jesus' victory. And so we've, we've heard a bump in the night. That's the surface sin. And so we've grabbed our flashlight and we've, went and we've searched it out. Right? We've gone to the basement. We've gone to where the, the boiler room is. And it's damp and it's dark. There's all kinds of crazy noises and we shine the light around and we're looking around and we, suddenly we see something there in the corner. And it scares us. And we say, I didn't know that was in my heart. I didn't know that that's what I was not believing about God. I didn't know that my motivation was leading me this way. And so we ref- we've identified the surface sin. We've chased it into the basement. And now we've seen it face to face. And what do we do? Well, number three, we acknowledge Jesus's victory. And we say that, that that bad guy, right? That boogie monster in the basement, it has no power over us. That Jesus's victory has defeated that. And so in faith, we believe that. We have victory over that sin, heinous as it may be. And we believe that, it's, that in the gospel, it's overcome our sin. And what do we do in that moment? We praise Jesus. We acknowledge his victory. We praise him and say, Jesus, you're victorious over this. Your cross covers this. Not just the, not just the sin and its penalty, but also its power. Jesus, I believe that. I acknowledge that. This is a truth. What I was saying is not true. What I was believing is not true. What what I did believe that gave way to this is not true. But this is true. That you are stronger than this. And so we acknowledge Jesus's victory. Number four, we work to specify relevant gospel promises that apply to whatever it is that you're believing. And so if we come to the point where we We're gossiping because we feel like we have to build ourselves up because we feel like our sinfulness has set us so low and that we could never be accepted. And we realize in that moment that, yes, sin of gossip is wrong, but we say the reason why I was gossiping, I've repented of that, but the reason why I was doing that was because I began to believe that I was not worthless or that I was not of any value, that I had to cover up, that I had to pretend and I had to perform because people wouldn't accept me and God wouldn't accept me. And what does the gospel say about that? That is a lie. It's not true. So we acknowledge Jesus' victory over that and we begin to find specific relevant promises that God has given to us in the gospel and in the New Testament in the Old Testament in his word. Truths about us. Truths about him. We shine that light of victory. We specify relevant gospel promises. So if pride leads you to covet, what do we do? We recognize that that Jesus has supplied all of our needs. That God has supplied all of our needs through Christ. And that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And that the things that we're going through right now, the lack that we have, it's all light and momentary. And that one day, we'll be with Christ. And everything that we've ever desired or wanted, all of those needs will be, all be fulfilled in a manifest way. In the presence of Christ. And so we trust him there. So we identify surface sins. We reflect on the motivations, giving way to those surface sins. We acknowledge Jesus' victory over those sins, over the penalty and its power. And then we specify relevant gospel promises. And you do all of these things by yourself, right? You recognize that you have A nail in the back of your head and so you get uh, you get a mirror you get some some vice grips you get some uh, some some you get some gauze you get some antibacterial stuff and you're getting all this ready and you've got the light shining into the mirror onto the back of the head and that's on a clamp right you're doing this all by yourself right no you don't do this by yourself and so point number five is you operate in community you operate in community and by the way, some of you guys are like, identify surface sense. Identify surface sense. Reflect on motivations. Reflect on motivation, Acknowledge Jesus victory. What was that again? Okay, what is it? I got it. Specify uh, relevant, relevant gospel promises. Got it, got it, got it, got uh, it. Operating community. Whoa. And then you shut it down. And you say, <laughs> yeah, I was ready to do this. I was ready to pluck my nose hair. I was ready to pop that zit. I was ready to take pictures of before and after, before this diet that I'm about to go on. I was about to do all that, but I am not going to walk in community with anybody on this. Some of you, that's where you're going to be stuck at. And if that's you, you're not believing the gospel. The gospel frees us to walk in community. And so don't be afraid. We'll never experience victory if we don't walk in community. So life groups, D groups, church membership. This is operating the community. What are we saying when we do that? We're saying, I need help. I can't do this by myself. I can't do all of these tasks in order to to, to get this nail out of my head without the help of brothers and sisters around me. So we're to operate in the community. I want to give you three steps, again, as it relates to this, that are underneath operating community. Number one, ask for brothers and sisters to help you identify heart motivations. I don't know how many times I asked my kid, this is such a dumb question. Yes, I said dumb, and I'm saying it about myself. Why did you do that? Well, they don't know why they did that, right? Why? They just did it. It's a surface sin. Why did you do that? I don't know. Oh, come on, tell me, why did you do that? They need somebody to help them. The Bible teaches that a, a, a man of understanding, well, what will he do? Well, he will, he'll help his brother to draw the deep water out of his heart. Because he doesn't know why he did that. And so when we walk in community with brothers and sisters, they're able to, we can ask them, hey, what do you see going on in my life? What do you see going on in my life? I'm asking you, what are, what are my heart motivations? Yes, you, you, I, it's easy for me to see, both of us, to see the surface sins. But what do you think that's all pointing to? What is it that I'm not believing? Can you help to dig into my heart? And so we ask, brothers and sisters, to help. Identify heart motivations. Here's another step as, as it relates to operating in community. It's to confess what truth that you have a tendency to reject about God and yourself. This is so difficult. This is so difficult. Some of you have, you have excellent theology. Excellent. You literally, you could, some of you could write books. You could write devotionals. You could do so much. You know so much about God and yet... You're ashamed of yourself because when you go into the basement, because you heard that thump in the night and you get that, you look around, you begin to see, I don't believe God. I don't believe what he says about himself. Or maybe we look over here and we say, I actually don't believe that the Bible teaches what the Bible teaches about my own sinfulness. I don't know how that could be disconnected and you're ashamed of yourself, and you say, how could I, how could I, no, and you cover it up, you run up the stairs, and you shut the door. In community, as we operate in community, as we believe the gospel, we what, we not just confess surface sins, but we confess the truth, or the unbelief that's in our hearts, and we say to our brothers and sisters, I need you to know something about me, that God's revealed this about myself, that I have been rejecting the fact that he is sovereign." I've been rejecting the fact that he is good, even though I'm facing these difficult things. So in community, we... And lastly, what do we do? Well, we invite others to speak into our lives. This is also very difficult. This is also terribly difficult. As we operate in community, we invite others to speak into our lives and we give them them the, the right as if we need to give it to them as our brothers and sisters but we give them the right to say hey I need you to speak into my life when you see me going down this path when you see me picking up those surface sins when you anticipate that maybe what's going on in my heart is actually this heart idol or sinful motivation or unbelief or whatever it is again I need you to, I need you to confront me remember that thing I confessed to you about my tendency to not believe this about God when you see that into my life I need you to speak into my life and even when i f- frustrate you, even when I put up a guard, even when I step back, I need you to step in. And I'm inviting you to do that. So we operate in community. How? will we ask brothers and sisters to help us identify heart motivations. We confess the the truth, or the, I'm sorry, the unbelief in our hearts about how we're rejecting something about God that he's called us to believe. And we invite others to speak into our lives. Church, the the key to gospel-driven transformation is to dig down deep To find the idolatry and the unbelief that's manifesting itself in various ways and then by applying the gospel and saying this is what I actually believe and this is what he's called me to believe and I'm going to choose this. That's what Jesus wants us to do. That's what he's calling us to do when he says believe the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, you know that we have a gift in making things more difficult than you intended them to be. You know that we have this sinful tendency in our hearts to step aside, to step away from the believing and lean into the doing. I confess that in my own life this morning. And yet that's breaking the first command because you've not called me to do as much as you called me to believe. So I pray that through the, the, our time together this morning that you would begin to lead me and, and so many of us gathered here this morning into this place of true belief. And that with the tools that we've discussed, we would see what's going on in our hearts. That we would confess, that we would repent, and that we would believe. And we pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus. and glory alone. Amen. amen.